you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father, as we begin our time to study what you have for us, we pray really the words of that song, that you would indeed speak to us, that your timeless, ageless truth would impact us here today, that we would understand what it means for us, that we might walk as you would have us walk, as those who profess to know your Son by faith and who walk in the reassurance and assurance that you are our God and that we are your children. So thank you for this time. May it impact us in the way you would have it. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We are continuing our study of this wonderful book, and we have come to chapter 7. And in my thinking about our time this morning, I always want to read for us a portion at least of the text that we're going to be in, and I, I had a hard time with deciding where to cut it off in Romans chapter 7 in order for us to get the entire idea of what he's saying. And so, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm going to read the entire chapter. Now, it's not Psalm 119, so there's not 176 verses here, so we don't have to moan so loudly when I say that. It's only 25 verses. We can get through this. But I think it's important for us to hear the entire chapter, and then as we begin over the next few weeks to dissect it, we'll, I think, have a better grasp of it. In light of what Paul has said in Romans chapter 6, he begins chapter 7, at least in our scriptures. He didn't have a chapter verse there, but, but we do. And chapter 7 says, Or do you not know, brethren, and I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Because apart from the law, sin is dead. 
And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, I, or I'm sorry, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing that or what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set? me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Some weeks ago in our evening service, as is our tradition, we have asked or we were asked a thematic question to ponder and to respond to. And one of the questions that was recently asked a few weeks ago was about what Bible character we might identify with the most. And of course, there were a whole host of answers and many reasons for those answers. And really, as we did that, it was a, some sense of a glimpse into what our own autobiography might be as we thought, thought through the lives of those whom we resonate with as we look at the Scriptures and read through the Scriptures. And I believe that all of us here this morning could easily say that we identify with the Apostle Paul. That when we read about the Apostle Paul, when we think about the Apostle Paul's life, that we identify with the Apostle Paul, especially when we read the words of this chapter. In Paul's determination for us as believers to fully understand all that we have through our union with Jesus Christ and the implications for us as Christians in our own Christian living, Paul has a, a great determination that we fully get that reality. And so he gives us a kind of autobiographical synopsis, if you will, of the life of the Christian 
and the relationship that we as Christians now have with the law. You may have heard in your own Christian life that we as Christians don't have a relationship to the law because we are now under grace. And yet I want us to be assured this morning that while we are indeed under grace, as we have learned already in Romans, we still have a relationship to the law. And the true question is then, in what way? In what way? Now, if you were there this morning in the study of Galatians, as Neil has been walking us through that study, you'll find a a very grand overlap that's taking place with what Paul is saying to the people of Galatia and what Paul is saying to the believers here in Rome. We still have a relationship with the law. And the most important reality that we ought to learn, at least from this text, is not where we tend to gravitate when we go to Romans chapter 7, and that is from verse 15 to 25 in the final section of this passage, that's not where we ought to go. The emphasis that we need to understand as Christians when we look at Romans chapter 7 is that our union with Jesus Christ has one goal, and it is heard in verse 4. Verse 4 at the end, that we might bear fruit for God. That is the goal of our union with Jesus Christ that we might bear fruit for God. To say it in, in the way that Paul wrote it to the believers in Ephesus is to say it this way. We are His, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the reality. And what are the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? My answer to that question is this. His law. His law. Or maybe to say it in its totality, the written will of God which is His Word. The good works that God created beforehand that we should walk in them are right there sitting on your lap or sitting on your electronic device, the Word of God. And so, as we begin this chapter, I don't want us to be confused as to the drive that is in the mind of the Apostle Paul, which is actually the drive in the mind of God. Remember that if we fail to understand the doctrine of justification in in all of its essence, if we fail to fully grasp what it means to be actually united with Jesus Christ, then we can easily become what we have looked at already as grace abusers or anti-commandment kind of Christians. And furthermore, as Christians, we can easily become from that, either way, legalists in practice which just simply means that we think our justification or our holiness before God is tied to our activity of righteousness. And so all of these dangers are possible if we misunderstand our union with Jesus Christ, and so we must understand that. And so while we are not bound to the law for our righteousness, 
In other words, to attain justification, we are not bound to the law. We are bound to the law by obligation because of our union with Christ. So in a nutshell, that is Paul's whole drive here in chapter 7. Are we under the law? No. And yes. Are we under the law as Christians? No. And yes, no as a means for our justification and our holiness. Yes, as the outworking of our loving obligation because we are united with Jesus Christ. And so the whole design of God by grace is to promote in us fruit for Him or the reflection of of the Christ-likeness in us, which was complete, utter, absolute obedience to whatever the will of the Father was. Now, we have to remember also that chapter 6 and 7 are somewhat a parenthetical insert, if you will, into Paul's entire thesis in the book of Romans. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, Remember what Paul has said at the end of chapter 5. Remember these words, for as, beginning in verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are very important words for all of us. Very important words for all who believe upon Jesus Christ. Why? Because, as we have learned, without that transaction, without that monumental transaction that took place through and with the obedience of Jesus Christ going to the cross on our behalf, we would have no hope before God. Why? Because we were all, and some of us who don't know Jesus Christ by faith, are still guilty before God. We are unjustified sinners, as Paul clearly laid out in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. We are all guilty. No one has an excuse. We are all guilty before God. And then chapter 4 comes along and shows that the only way to be justified before God is by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You're guilty. The only way to be justified is believe upon Jesus Christ so that union with Christ is an actual and present union that has massive implications for us who believe. And yet, all that we have been given in Christ can be used in a problematic way if we don't understand what it means. And so Paul interjects for us chapter 6 and 7 to bring clarity Clarity to the potential for confusion in the minds of particularly the moralist. The one who thinks 
on either side of salvation that they can either be morally righteous and thereby be justified before God by their efforts or as a Christian that somehow your efforts make you holy before God. The moralist who tries on their own at those kinds of things. Of course, the Jew would fit into that category, but many, many people who do not have a Jewish heritage would fit into that category. Paul could have simply went from the end of the words of chapter 5 and easily jumped right over to the beginning of chapter 8. Right? The end of chapter 5, we have this union with Jesus Christ. In the beginning of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul could have easily just jumped right to there. But there was too much potential for confusion by what he said. In chapter 5. And so we have chapter 6 and 7 for clarification. Now, we've already looked at chapter 6. We've already studied that in depth and the explanation of how easy it is to become a grace abuser or to go the other direction and say the law has no bearing on us. It's easy if we don't understand justification and all that we have in Jesus Christ by union with him to easily abuse the grace of God and say, well, since grace abounds, I'll just go sinning. And if, if grace is abounding and if I'm not under the law, then it really doesn't matter what I do. There's potential for confusion both of those directions. And so to further explain away the potential confusion, we have not just chapter 6, but we have chapter 7 also. Like I said, the drive of this is for us to be people who bear fruit for God. That's Paul's drive. So how is this shown to us? How is this shown to us in chapter 7? Well, I believe it's shown to us, at least I'm breaking it down, by three sections. Three sections in chapter 7. I'm just going to give you an overall outline of chapter 7, and then we'll look at one section this morning, and these are the three sections. Number one, Paul lays out our relationship as Christians to the law. Our relationship as Christians to the law. It's kind of ironic that Neil this morning was getting into that a little bit in Galatians. The relationship of the law to us as Christians. This is Paul's reality in Romans of dealing with this subject. Our relationship to the law, verses 1 to 6. We're going to see that, that this morning. The second section that we'll look at another time is the ultimate purpose of the law. The ultimate purpose of the law, verses 7 to 12, or 7 to 13, really. And then uh, the third section are the Christians, or our battle that goes on in remaining faithful. The battle to remain faithful, verses 14 to 25. So these are the sections that we're going to hang our thoughts on over the next several weeks. Our relationship as Christians to the law, the ultimate purpose of the law, and then our battle to remain faithful as Christians. So if I was to summarize all of this just for us this morning, if there was nothing else you get from the next several messages in Romans, if your mind is just taken away by other distractions or something else over the next several weeks, I want you to remember this, okay? 
If you want the point of the whole thing, the whole driving thing, as we get started, this is it, all right? Paul's emphasis in Romans chapter 7 is for us to realize that the only way to bear fruit for God, the only way to bear fruit for God, you can do it no other way, the only way to bear fruit for God is to understand your unity with Christ. If I was to ask you after this message what's the drive of the next several messages, you ought to be able to tell me that. That's going to be the only test question on the test. In other words, without a true relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no fruit of righteousness in your life. None. There is no fruit of righteousness without Jesus Christ prior to salvation, no matter how hard you try. And there is no fruit of holy living in your life without understanding your unity with Jesus Christ. All of it is an attempt at your own Righteousness. So no matter how much you may try, there is no righteousness without a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul will say it numerous different ways in numerous different places in Scripture. By the works of the law, no man is justified. And I will say it this way. By the works of the law, your Christian life does not make you holy. By the works of the law. Nor are we made holy in the eyes of God in any kind of way by the works of the law. That is simply to say that no person is innocent in the eyes of a holy God by means of keeping rules and regulations. Nor does keeping rules and regulations make us any more holy than we already are in Christ in the sight of God. And so this is what we are going to begin to talk about this morning. Let's begin by looking at this first section. What then is our relationship as Christians to the law? What is our relationship to the law? Paul asks or begins to ask in verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, and I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has just jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? We can just stop right there. The truth, the chief truth that all of us as Christians must realize, the chief truth is this. We are actually in union with Jesus Christ. Sometimes we don't think like that in our Christianity, but we are in an actual, real union with Jesus Christ. That is to say by way of illustration, that we are joined to him just like you husbands and wives and a married couple is joined together. This is a very important illustration for us to get in our minds. We are joined to Christ just like a married couple is is joined together. In fact, if we do not think of our relationship with Christ in that way, then we are missing the intended impact of our relationship with Christ in our lives. And maybe that's possibly why it's so easy for us to go on sinning like we do. Because we have missed the reality of what it means to be joined with Jesus Christ. Quite possibly, at least in our day, with the view of commitment being 
leveled so low on the spectrum of what it means to be committed to anything, especially when it comes to marriage. And the ease at which so many in the covenant relationship of marriage are unfaithful in the marriage, and I'm not talking about in some kind of sexual way. I'm talking about in a myriad of subtle other ways where they are unfaithful to the promise and vow they made to each other before God as God joined them together as a couple. Even though they are married. So many are unfaithful to their marriage vows. That simply shows us a picture of how we treat our professed relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we have one responsibility as a Christian. We have one responsibility, that is to be faithful to the covenant of marriage, to be faithful to the union to which we have been committed by God. Remember, we have been committed to this union, chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, that you had a union with sin, that you were joined to that like a a married couple and you couldn't get out of that if you tried to, even though you may have wanted to and even though you may have attempted in all of your being to try to not sin, you couldn't get out of that, but you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Not something you did, but something God did. We have one responsibility as a Christian, and that is to be faithful to that covenant union. So this is how Paul begins to explain our relationship to the law. It's extremely helpful for us to think through it. And I love Paul's logical way of thinking. Because just like he has done in the past, Paul first lays out a general principle, verse 1. And then second, he begins to explain that principle through an example, verses 2 and 3. And then third, he applies it to us in our union with Christ in verses 4 to 6. So our relationship to the law is is broken out that way. The general principle, the example to show that principle, and then he applies it to us. So let's notice then first the general principle. I read it already in verse 1. Don't you know, brethren, and I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, again, this is Paul beginning to talk to those who are professing believers, and he's, again, in a general, speaking of a general common knowledge principle that all people know and understand. So don't get the idea in your mind as you read this that Paul is only speaking to the Jews here because the Jews had the law of Moses. Don't get that in your mind when you're reading this text, especially from the words that we have in the parenthesis here in this verse where I'm speaking to those who know the law. Because Paul is speaking to every person. This is a general principle. In other words, this is not one of us who does not understand in this room the rules of law. There's not one of us who does not understand the reality that law has no effect upon a person if they are no longer alive. We understand that as a general principle. This is a generally known reality. 
You'll pick up commentators who will write a commentary on the book of Romans, and some commentators you'll read are going to suggest that Paul is only addressing the Jews. Why? Because he is speaking of the law of Moses, they say. That's not what Paul is referring to here. Paul is simply referring to the law in general, just law, to universal rules within society, something that is true of all of human society. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter. I saw in the news this morning they found uh, the uh, an unknown Amazon uh, tribe that they had been wondering that was out there, never saw them, and somebody got a picture somehow with a drone or something, and they, they saw Even that Amazon tribe has rules, laws. It doesn't matter where you go. This is a general principle for all human society. The Mosaic law is certainly included in that. But it isn't only the Mosaic law that Paul is referring to in this general principle. In fact, if that was the case here, then this would be a specific principle that was only for the Jews. And therefore, if Paul was only speaking to the Jews, he would have addressed them in a different way than simply saying what he says in the first phrase, or do you not know, brethren, generic, brethren. He would have addressed them much like he does in chapter 9 and verse 3. Just to show you this, so that you don't get confused when you're reading commentaries and somebody tries to to hoodwink you into thinking this is only for the Jews. Chapter three, Paul, or chapter nine, Paul is is moving into the argument as to why the Jews uh, have been set aside for a time. He says, "I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, verse one, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart." For I could wish, verse 3, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. There's that same term, same term he uses in chapter 7. For my brethren, my kinsmen in the flesh, or my kinsmen according to the flesh. So here in chapter 9, he sees specifically identifies the Jews with the term brethren, and he does it by qualifying who the brethren are by means of a qualifying phrase, my kinsmen according to the flesh. If it was only the Jews here in chapter 7, then Paul certainly would have qualified it because if it wasn't simply the Jews, there's no need to qualify it in chapter 9. In other words, everyone knows this general principle. What's the principle? It's simply this. Societal rules and societal regulations are only operative upon the living. They do not operate. They do not have bearing on. They do not have jurisdiction over those who are not living. To say it another way, you can go right down here into the center of town. The bodies that are lying there within the cemetery have no care about the laws that you have to live under. There's no one in the grave writing a tax form. Although the government would like that. But it has no bearing upon them. So what Paul is talking about here is something that is true of law in general. It's it's true of law in general dealing with all people, men, women alike. 
no matter where you go in the world. The law, in general, has jurisdiction only over the living. So if you're living, then the law has jurisdiction over you. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. It still has its jurisdiction. If you want to opt out of the law that God, by His grace, has placed you under, Romans chapter 13 will tell us, if you want to opt out of the law that's over you, the jurisdiction that's over you, the only way to opt out is for you to die. So this principle is common knowledge to all people. It's an obvious truth. That's Paul's point in chapter in verse 1. Don't you know, brethren, and I'm speaking to all of you who know about law. You know what he's saying? I'm speaking to all of you who are alive. All of you who are breathing. Every breathing human being, I'm speaking to you. You know the law. But the law has its jurisdiction. It has its authority over a person as long as you are alive. So look at what Paul does. He says, in effect, All of us should agree with this general principle. All of us should agree. In other words, to disagree with this general principle is simply to be intellectually dishonest with yourself. To disagree with this general principle is just to act insane. And then he he takes the general principle, the principle that applies to all of us as people, and he gives us an understandable example from life. Verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So, we understand the general principle. Law applies to the living. But now, but how does it specifically work? How does the law specifically work by way of application? And Paul uses the example of marriage. It's a wonderful example for us to look at. Why? Because it illustrates not simply how the law works, not simply about the general principle that if you're alive, the law is over you, and that includes marriage. So it doesn't simply just illustrate the the general principle of law, but it highlights the reality of how we ought to see our union with Christ. It's interesting to me who has the opportunity from time to time to officiate weddings, Randy's doing that today, to do premarital counseling for young couples who are looking to be joined, that the most important truth that I try to emphasize with the couples is the reality of commitment and faithfulness to the new union that they are entering into with each other. Faithfulness to the commitment and the union that they have to one another. And this is how we must think of our union with Jesus Christ. And Paul uses marriage to illustrate it. And maybe, just maybe, we Christians have allowed a shallow 
and watered-down view of physical marriage, whereby we are actually unfaithful to our partners in many subtle ways, that we actually now treat our relationship with Christ in the same kind of way. Disobedient, unfaithful ways. So let's look at this illustration together. Let's look at this illustration together. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. Now let's not get tied up in our minds as to who is bound to whom in the illustration. Okay? Illustrations are like three-legged chairs. They stand for a while, but if you remove one leg, they fall over. Okay? They're, They're there for a reason. But let's not get tied up in our minds with who is bound to whom in the illustration. Paul obviously is in ancient Rome. And and marriage within ancient Rome and the marriage views within ancient Rome differed to the views of ours, albeit not in the mind of God. Not in the mind of God. But the overall emphasis that I'm trying to bring out here, that Paul is trying to bring out here, is that the union in a marriage is one in which... The husband and wife are bound together. They are intimately and and until death do them part, tied together not simply by commitment, but by law. By law. And yet, only as long as they both are alive. The law has jurisdiction as long as... They are alive. They are bound, verse 2, by law while they are living. But if the husband dies, you could put the wife in there. If the wife dies, they are released from the law, the marriage law. So if someone is unfaithful in the marriage while they're married, I don't care if it's if it's an overt act outside the marriage whereby someone goes and does those kinds of illicit things, or if it's just in subtle ways within the marriage, there's some sense of unfaithfulness to the commitment, to the promise of the vow. If if you're unfaithful in the marriage, the jurisdiction of the law labels you a violator of the law. That's the reality. The person who was unfaithful, here in Paul's illustration, the married woman, is declared by the law an adulteress. If she, if her husband is living, verse three, she's joined to another man. She's called an adulteress. She's not called an adulteress by by people walking around saying you're an adulteress because they just have a derogatory term for them. No, that's what the law calls her. The law determines it. The law has declared it. You have violated the law, this marriage vow, this marriage law. Thereby you are, by the law's account, an adulterer. Now remember, in the illustration, it's not, or in the passage itself, in chapter 7, Paul's not necessarily talking about marriage. In other words, this isn't a passage to go to if you want to teach on marriage. It's not Paul's intent here to teach a treatise on the marriage relationship. This is simply an example of how the law works. The law works in the realm of the living. And notice verse 3, 
It says, but if her husband dies, she's free from the law. She's free from that jurisdiction. She's free from that that requirement. She's free from the law. Not the law in general. Just because that part of the law isn't over anymore doesn't mean she's not free to she's free to the rest of the law. Go do whatever you want because now you're not married anymore. No. Just that. She's free from that reality of the law. So you see, if death occurs, doesn't matter which one, Paul uses the husband as the one dying because of the illustration he's using. But in reality of the law, it doesn't matter who dies. It doesn't matter if the wife dies. It doesn't matter if the husband dies. The idea is here that a death occurs. So if a death occurs, the law of marriage, the lifelong committed faithfulness, vow, union, is no longer valid with that couple. It's over. Why? Because a death occurred. The other partner is now free be joined to another without being declared an adulterer by law. They're now free to be joined to another without being declared by the law a lawbreaker. And so, I want you to think with me on this. What is this saying to us? What is this saying to us as Christians? It's saying to us that our relationship to the law as an unbeliever was the same as that of a wife to her husband under the law. Our relationship to the law, Paul is equating with the relationship of a husband and wife being bound together. They were joined together. They cannot get out of it. As an unbeliever, we're bound to the law. We cannot get out of it. Something had to die. The wife was under obligation to her husband when he's alive. She's under obligation. You are under obligation to your spouse as long as they are alive. And so, like in marriage, Paul is saying our relationship to the law could not be broken without death. Without death. The illustration, the woman was set free, verse 3, free from the permanence of the relationship that she was in when her husband died. Now, why is this important for us to know? Because this is the same reality that has happened to us with the law and in relation to our union now with Jesus Christ, who is our new husband who is our new partner. This is the same thing Paul is driving at. In other words, if we are going to bear fruit for God, if we are going to walk in honor of the name of God, in honor of being children of God as we ought to walk, just like Christ walked, the first contact that we had needed to be broken. The first relationship we had needed to be made null and void. Before we were bound to the law. Now, you may not have seen your life like that. You may not have gone around thinking that you were bound to the law, but you were bound to the law. You were attempting to be righteous on your own. 
attempting to be righteous by the works of the law. You were bound to the law for your righteousness. And the sad reality is that by the works of the law, no one is justified. You see, by the works of the law, you can't attain righteousness. Why? Because you fail. Because every time you try, you can't do it. You can't be holy by the works of the law. Why? Because the law is perfect. You can't do it, no matter how hard you try. And so even though we were married to the law, even though it had its authority over us, even though the jurisdiction was over us as our being bound to the law, we were completely unable to live by it perfectly. We were completely, in fact, unfaithful to it. If you don't think so, go back to Romans to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. We're lawbreakers. If you violate one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. And so as we saw in chapters 1 to 3, we were all guilty under the law. And the penalty of that guilt declared by the law is death, eternal death. There's only one thing that could rescue us from the first relationship to the law, death. There's only one thing that could separate us from that bound union. We were bound till death do us part, and a death had to occur. And so Paul applies his illustration to us as Christians in verses 4 through 6. Notice what he says. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Why? That you might be joined to another. To who? To him who was raised from the dead. Why? That we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Did you notice that it wasn't the law that died? Paul's illustration, it was the woman that died. And the illustration of law, the law of marriage, it really doesn't matter who dies the law is null and void when one person dies. Did you notice in Paul's description it wasn't the law that died, but rather it was us who died? Why is that important? Why is it important that it was us who die? Because what is important to the Apostle Paul here is what needs to be important to us. And what is important to the Apostle Paul in light of chapter 5 and chapter 6 is that a death has occurred 
and therefore we are no longer bound to the law as a means of attaining righteousness. We are no longer bound to the law as a means of attaining righteousness. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, then you have died to the law as a means of attaining your own righteousness. Remember John chapter, or Luke chapter 10? The lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to be justified? And wanting to justify himself, Jesus says to him, what does the law say? In other words, if you want to be justified by your own means, what's the law require? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered well. Go and do that. He knew full well he hadn't done that. He knew full well he hadn't done that. He sinned in every way. And so he says in second to justify himself. So, okay, well, tell me who my neighbor is. Jesus gives the illustration of the Good Samaritan. Who do you think was a neighbor to the one who fell by the hands of robbers? And he said, well, I, I would suppose the one who was the Samaritan. He said, you go and do the same. A Jew would never do that. Jesus wasn't highlighting the reality that you can become righteous by keeping the law. No one is righteous by the works of the law. He was re illustrating the reality there's no way you can make yourself justified before God. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, then you have died to the law. You have been set free from the demand of the law. The law says do this. And if you do that, this is the reality. If you obey the law, you get the blessings of the law. But if you violate the law, you get the consequences of the law. The law is unbending. The law does not say, I'm sorry. The law says, this is it. If you violate the law, you shall surely die. Adam, if you don't do what I said, on that very day you shall surely die. all have sinned and fallen short of the grace of God, for the wages of sin is death. That's what the law demands. If you sin, you die. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You see, how did our death to the law take place? It took place through, Paul says, the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ. Christ didn't deserve to die the law. He didn't do anything wrong. Christ came to do the will of the Father, and His will He did completely and perfectly without fail. He made Him who knew no sin. Christ knew no sin. Christ was never a sinner. The law, by way of the law, Christ perfectly righteous. And yet, we died to the law through the body of Christ. When? When did that happen? When he died in our place on the cross, when he bore the weight and penalty of our unfaithfulness to the law, of our 
unfaithfulness to the commitment of our lawlessness. And since he died, and by faith in him we have been freed from the law, the implication is we are now free to be joined to another husband. The law has no jurisdiction over us by way of righteousness. We are now free to be joined to a new husband, the old husband we have died to. Who is the new husband? Jesus Christ. To him who was raised from the dead. To him who was raised from the dead. You see? Remember chapter 6 and all the benefits we have through our union with Christ? We've been buried with Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. We've been buried with Him in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. We have become united with Him. That was our marriage ceremony. That was our death to the law and our and the and the union with Christ that God wrought in us and committed us to the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ. We were then married to this new husband. So now, we're not being unfaithful to the old husband, law. Now we are joined to a new husband because we have died to the law and been declared righteous in Christ. So that, what? Here's the whole purpose. Chapter 7, verse 4. So that we might bear fruit for God. So that we might be faithful to this new union. We, we've died to the old union. Now we're, we're joined to this new union. To the one who did die. But to the one who rose from the dead to a newness of life. So that we too might walk in this new union of life. So now we are not unfaithful to the old union. By not obeying the law in the sense of for our righteousness. Now we are joined to this new union, so our salvation is a complete change of relationship. We no longer have the first husband we had. The law as a means of righteousness is dead. We are no longer under the bondage of the law. We are now married to Jesus Christ. You see, salvation has a product. Salvation produces something in that life. And the product of true salvation isn't to be an abuser of grace. The product of this union, this faithfulness to this union with Jesus Christ isn't to go, oh, well, since grace abounds, I'll just go on sinning. I'll go on living with my old husband. I'll go on living a union with somebody else. No, that's not the product of of salvation. The product of salvation isn't to be a grace abuser. It isn't to refuse the law. The law is righteous and perfect and good. No, the product of true salvation is obedience. Holy fruitfulness for God. That means fruit that points to the greatness of God. Greatness of His glory. 
In other words, the product of true salvation is not to remove the law altogether. That's not the product of salvation. No, it's to enable us to keep God's law. To do what honors God. Not to attain righteousness, but simply out of love for Him as our new husband. To be faithful to our new relationship. Let me just read again for us verses 5 and 6, and we'll, we'll just finish with this. For while we were in the flesh, he's just talking about our, hum, hum, our humanness, while we were unsaved, unbelievers, while we were in the flesh, we were living in the flesh, living in our humanness, our, our fleshiness, our unredeemedness, while we were in that state, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, What's he mean there? He means, listen, when the sign says don't step on the grass, what happens? We go, really? See, I did it. Nothing happened to me. That's what happens. The law says don't do this. Don't go that direction. And the sinful passions in our heart go, uh, I want to go that way in a thousand different ways. I want to go that way. That's why Paul says a little later, I didn't know coveting until the law said don't covet, and then I found that I was coveting everything. That's what happens. Law says don't step on the grass. We want to step on the grass. You tell your children don't touch that plug, and what do they do? They want to touch it. That doesn't mean you disregard telling them don't touch the plug. No. We have a change of relationship. We have a change of relationship. And he says, when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by what was right and good. Those sinful passions were at work in the members of our bodies, and they were bearing fruit to death. They were just producing sin after sin after sin after sin. I don't want to do that. I I know that's what I should do, but I'm not doing that. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do my own thing. But now, verse 6, we've been released from the law. We've been released from the requirement to try to attain righteousness on our own according to the law, which we found we could never do. We've died to it. So that we now serve. Serve who? Serve this new husband in newness of the spirit. We've been given the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. In other words, the oldness of the letter said you, in order to attain righteousness by the law, you had to be perfect. That's the oldness of the letter. Do this or you're going to die. If you don't do that, you're going to die. If you violate one part, you die. We don't serve that way. We don't attain righteousness or holiness that way. We just serve out of a newness of the Spirit. Simply because now we have a new husband who has removed us from the requirement of the law. We are free now to do what is right. You see, we can never say goodbye completely to the law. Thanks be to God that we are no longer under it as a way of for salvation. But we are to keep it. We are to keep the law. We are to honor it. We are to practice it in our daily lives, not in order to attain righteousness, not in order to think that somehow if I do it, I'll be more holy before God than I was yesterday. We are already as holy as we can ever get before God. We are enveloped in Christ's righteousness. Can Christ get any more holy than he is? 
Neither can you. Not before God. But you can obey. You can do what's right. You're not under condemnation of the law, verse chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but that does not mean that we are not to have no interest in the law. And so we thank God for such a great salvation, don't we? We thank God that He freed us from the requirement of the law joined us to another and thereby equipped us by the power of the Spirit to actually be able to bear fruit for God. What a great privilege. Not to just disregard it, but now to actually be able to do what it says. Next time we're going to see the ultimate purpose of the law. We've heard some about that. I'm sure you could probably answer the question, but we've got to look at what Paul said. The ultimate purpose of the law. Which is good. It's a good purpose. It drove us to recognize our sin. Right now, our relationship is to the law is that we don't live under it by means of our righteousness, but we live under it as an obligation out of love to obey because we have a new husband, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for our time here. We thank you for these words. I trust that we don't go away from here confused about these things. I trust that, that we look at life differently in our relationship to you. We ponder the profoundness of what it means to have you as our new union forever, never to die again. This will never be dissolved if we truly know you by faith. For you died once for all. And we, if we know you by faith, died with you through the law that we might live in newness of life. Help us do that by your grace. Help us know what your word says that we might walk in it. By the power of your spirit, I trust we will submit to it that you might be glorified and honored in us by means of our obedience to you because we believe in Jesus Christ our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.